0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: Tonight, we are going to study one of the more arcane aspects of systematic theology. Um, we're going through Wayne Grudem's book, and so a lot of the material that we're talking about uh, tonight uh, is coming from Wayne Grudem. Not all of it, though. I think you'll be able to discern what is added by your pastor and what you know, Wayne Grudem, uh, with a sober-minded seriousness to theology, wrote and what I mixed in with some humor. Um, but uh, we're going to be talking about the essential nature of man. All right. Just an overview. We're in the section of systematic theology. We're studying systematic theology. For those of you that uh, need to be reminded or refreshed as to what that is, theology is the study of God. That's what theology is. Systematic theology is a study of what the Bible says about God and about the various topics of the Bible. It's a topical study of of biblical truth. That's what it is. Systematic theology. So basically, uh, it takes what the Bible says about various issues and topics, what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about man, what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, about salvation, about heaven and hell, about angels, about prayer, about all these major and important topics, and just says uh, uh, in an efficient way some of the truths that are available in the scripture. We can never exhaust uh, everything the Bible says about prayer, for example, but it's going to give a, a sense of the truth of the Bible um, in each of those topics. And so we are studying that. Other types of theology would be, for example, biblical theology, which kind of studies the lay of the land of what the what the old covenant, new covenant says. Uh, Redemptive historical approach would study just the unfolding of the history of redemption uh, in a kind of a historical way. There's different ways to study theology, but we're looking in this course as we have uh, in previous Acts classes on systematic theology. And uh, so we're in the section of systematic theology called the doctrine of man. Uh, Others call it anthropology. It's really the same thing. That's just a fancy way of saying the same thing, the study of man. And so there's an overview on the first page of your outline here, overview of the doctrine of man in Wayne Grudem's textbook. And again, that's what we're following. Uh, We looked already at the creation of man. We talked about the use of the word man to refer to the human race. And then also why was man created? And then the very important topic of man in the image of God and what that meant. So that was a wonderful study, and there's so many things we could say about that, but that man was created and why he was created and uh, for the glory of God, and then uh, what it it means that he was created in the image of God. Uh, Last time, we talked about man as male and female. So we got into the issue of gender. What, What does it mean? Why did God create man, male and female, in the image of God? He created them, male and female. He created them, each of them created in the image of God. We talked about the reasons that God did, Uh, that we talked about personal relationships equality and personhood and importance but difference in roles uh, all of that we discussed last time if you weren't here last time I think these teachings are available on the internet you can just uh, click and get them you can also get tapes if you're interested or you can just read uh, Wayne Grudem's book he's done such a really good job of uh, covering these various things so that's just review tonight we're going to be talking about the essential nature of man what is man what 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 are the component parts of man? That's what we're talking about. So trichotomy, dichotomy, and monism. Uh, we're going to talk about biblical data on the soul and spirit, arguments for trichotomy, uh, responses to arguments for trichotomy. Scripture does speak of an immaterial part of man that can exist without body. And then where do our souls come from? Creationism, traducianism, and pre-creationism, uh, et cetera. So... That's that's what's in front of us tonight, Um, and then the next time that we study, we'll be looking at the doctrine of sin, the definition of sin, the origin of sin, uh, the uh, doctrine of original sin, so-called inherited or original sin, and actual sins in our lives and the punishment of sin. These are the uh, uh, categories of that. And then uh, the final section in Groom's book on uh, anthropology, the study of man, is the doctrine of Covenants. Um, What are covenants? Uh, What principles determine the way that God relates to us? Uh, The covenant of works, the covenant of redemption, and the covenant of grace. Okay, so that's just the lay of the land right now. I introduced this whole class, Systematic Theology. I told you the subsection of truth that we're in right now, the study of the doctrine of man. Now, uh, below that, we're looking at the essential nature of man, okay? Now, these words, I'm certain, will be unfamiliar to many of you trichotomy, dichotomy, and monism. What we're talking about is basically the question, how many component parts are there to man? All right, what makes us up? What are we? Now, everyone agrees we have bodies. I hope you do agree. Uh, Christian scientists may differ on that. They deny essential reality. doesn't get them very far in real life. If you punch them in the nose, they'll get just as upset, uh, even though they deny uh, physical corporeal existence. Uh, one of the funniest stories i ever heard is that mary baker Eddy, who who came up with uh, christian science actually had a phone put in her mausoleum or tomb so that she could call and get have somebody come get her out because she denied the reality of death Uh, my systematic theology professor roger nicole said he actually was able to get hold of the number and called it and it was busy which really bothered him Um, (laughs) he didn't know exactly what was going on there um but uh, if it's busy, she's still in there. Hadn't been able to get out yet, um, but she's uh, working on it. But anyway, the rest of us agree. We all know we have bodies. The question is, what about our immaterial part? What about that immaterial part of us? Uh, the soul, the spirit, what is that? Now, uh, most people, even non-Christians, sense that we have some immaterial part to us, a soul or something that's going to live on after we die. But that's the end of the agreement. Among Bible-believing Christians, there is, even within us, a division between those that believe that there's a key distinction between the soul and the spirit among the immaterial parts of us. And we're going to spend a lot of time on that tonight, try to discern if there's anything to that. Now, this is just a kind of a quick introduction. Trichotomous, uh, cut man, that's what the the cutting, it's like a three, a cutting into three parts is what it really means. Believe that man, it could be cut up or made into three distinct parts body soul and spirit they teach that man's soul includes his intellect his emotions and will they maintain that everyone has this capacity whether they're born again or not but they say that man's spirit is a higher faculty of man that comes alive when a person becomes a christian they say that this is the part of him or her that prays to god and relates to god so they're making a very significant statement there that non-christians have essentially two parts to them and christians have essentially three parts That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And fascinating. Romans 8.10, they uh, will cite as one of the scriptures and we'll look at it later on. But it says, if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. So they have this sense of the spirit has come to life through faith in Christ. You now have a living spirit. Uh, Another verse they would look at would be the teaching that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Uh, But uh, Christ made us alive. Uh, God made us alive with Christ through faith in him. So we have this idea of of a part of us having been created at the moment of faith. That's what trichotomists teach. There's three parts. So for them, it'd be very important to make a strong distinction between spirit and soul. They're two different things doing two different things within you. And so we'll talk about that. Then dichotomists believe that man is made up of two distinct parts, a physical material part called the body and an immaterial part called alternately soul and spirit, the words being used interchangeably. Very hard to find a distinction between the two biblically. That's what I believe, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight, but others may disagree. So we're going to look at that uh, tonight and the biblical evidence for that. Now, monists believe basically we're just physical. Now, this is not, I believe, a Christian view. Uh, certainly not an evangelical Christian view. They basically say the body is all there is, and any sense that you have of kind of a spiritual nature to you is just kind of chemicals firing in the synapses of your brain and all that kind of thing. And there's really no reality there. This is this would be an atheist scientist kind of person who would kind of smile when you start talking about the soul. Soul cannot be proven. Say again. Humanistic, right? You know, and then they're, they're going to deny what the Scripture says, and they're not looking to Bible verses to tell them about the soul. All right, um, this is outside of evangelical circles. It's not sustainable biblically. Many scriptural texts refute this concept. For example, Second Corinthians five eight uh, says, "We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord." Uh, somebody tell me what it is that's away from the body and at home with the Lord. Well, what is that? What would you call it? The, that which is away from the body and at home with the Lord. Spirit, seems to be used in scripture. Spirit uh, or soul. Uh, you know, and and that's the thing. But to to be a monist saying there's nothing like that. There's nothing that could be separated from the body and with the Lord. Well, that's just not biblical. Were the Sadducees monists? Uh, you know, um, they they did not believe in the resurrection. Whether we would call them monists or not, we don't have a lot of data on what they believe biblically. Uh, you know, all we know is they denied the resurrection. So perhaps they were. Philippians one twenty three and 24. Uh, Paul's ruminating on whether he would like to keep on living in the body or go and be with the Lord. And so he says, "I'm torn between between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body." Uh, so he's he's thinking about remaining in the body. And this is really an important thought for us as Christians. You know, we are. We are housed in these jars of clay, aren't we? These bodies. Uh, And we can be and will be separated from these jars of clay at death. And that which is separated from uh, the body at death, spirit or soul, whatever, goes uh, goes and is with the Lord through faith in Christ. Um, that's what we believe. So Paul's ruminating, saying for myself, I wouldn't mind that separation. I'd like to go ahead and do it. Be done with with this uh, uh, part of me that's outwardly wasting away every day, he says. The part uh, that's able to be beaten and scourged, etc." All right? So I, it's impossible to maintain a monist position, but I just lay it out there as one of the anthropological um, statements that's made of man. Okay? Now let's dig in and try to understand more what the Bible says. Now, Grudem makes an initial statement And says this, Before asking whether Scripture views soul and spirit as distinct parts of man, we must at the outset make it clear that the emphasis in Scripture is on the overall unity of man as created by God. When God made man, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being, Genesis 2.7. Here Adam is a unified person with body and soul living and acting together. This original harmonious, And unified uh, state of man will occur again when Christ returns and we are fully redeemed in our bodies as well as our souls to live in him. What he's really getting at here is, you know, when you talk about trichotomy and dichotomy, you're talking about cutting uh, apart what God really intends ultimately to be perfectly integrated and together. All right. And that ultimately we are, per, we're going to be perfectly integrated, our our physical and immaterial part of us in some amazing way. Now, right now we are not perfectly integrated. You know, we've got the spirit and you've got what's called the flesh and there's struggles within us. And we want to be one uh, the Romans seven is the ultimate chapter about that, but Galatians five as well, that there's a battle within us. You're never going to be totally content and happy no matter what you do. Isn't that amazing? You're never totally content and happy being righteous. You're never totally content and happy sinning. Either way, you're going to be struggling, right? Uh, and, and you find that to be the case, don't you? But ultimately, God intends that there be a beautiful harmony and integration in all the aspects of our body, of ourselves. So, uh, Now, it's very important for us to turn to the Bible on this topic. Okay, Our uh, atheistic friends and neighbors uh, will reject the data that we're going to be going through the rest of the evening. But uh, we can find no other source of information about the human soul. You know, I go through the uh, uh, catechism with our children, and one of the questions is, uh, talking about original creation, what else did God give Adam beside a body? Adam and Eve beside bodies. Answer is, he gave them souls that can never die. Um, the next question in the catechism is, do you have a soul as well as a body? Answer, yes, I have a soul that can never die. The next question is very important. How do you know? that you have a soul as well as a body answer because the Bible tells me so I don't know what other answer you can give for that okay can you feel your soul some people think they can actually that's one of the arguments Grudem gives for trichotomy is people sense that there's a part of themselves that's different than their mind that informs them spiritually and relates to God etc but ultimately the information from this must come from texts of Scripture it's the Bible that's telling us that we have a part of us that can be absent from the body and present with the Lord and that's called our soul And that's really kind of hard to, well, I hate to put it this way, but hard to grab hold of, right? I mean, what is a soul, right? What's it made up of, you know? And and it's really very similar to what is an angel or even frankly, what is God? When we say that God is a spirit, what's he made up of? Nothing. He's not made up of anything and yet he's certainly there. He exists. Same thing with our soul. It's really quite a mystery, isn't it? But we believe that this uh, truly exists. Now, uh, we must grow in grace in every area of our lives uh, to be to, truly integrated. We're not trying to be compartmentalized as we try to study these different parts of the body. 2 Corinthians 7.1 that we're going to meet later on, it says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So we want to uh, be totally uh, sanctified. 1 Thessalonians five. Uh, 23 will teach the same thing. Now, one of the main points that a dichotomist like me will make, uh, and like Grudem, will make uh, is that the scripture uses spirit and soul, these words, interchangeably. All right? And it really doesn't take that long to start to see it. Uh, For example, uh, Christ's uh, troubled soul and spirit. Look at uh, John 12, 27. By the way, I had to revert to the ESV on a lot of these. Uh, NAS would have done just as well, and frankly, the KJV as well, because the NIV is constantly messing around with soul and translating it my life or my heart or something like that. I don't know why. It's one of the words, just like the word for, that it doesn't deal with properly. So I had to c- just consistently go over to a more literalistic translation like the ESV on this particular one. On other other uh, verses and other doctrines, NIV will do just fine. But on this one, I had to really kind of get away from it because we're making a precise dis- distinction between the word soul and spirit and that's I wanted to study that and ESV did a good job with it. Uh so look at John 12:27 right there on the on the page. It says there and this is Jesus speaking. He says, "Now my now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this very purpose I have come to this hour." So Jesus says that his soul is troubled. So it's the Greek word for soul. And he uses it here to say that it's trouble. But then in John 13, 21, it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So what is the part of you that can be troubled? What, what do you call it? The part of you, that internal part of you that can be troubled? Well, apparently the Bible calls it soul and it also calls it spirit. It uses these terms interchangeably. Another example is uh, is what Mary said that beautiful, beautiful Hebrew symmetry and repetition. You've noticed this again and again, I'm sure, in Proverbs and in Psalms, how they'll say the same thing twice, but in slightly different ways. And so the redundancy, it's just their way of poetry. We do rhyme. They didn't do rhyme. They more did repetition and rearrangement using synonyms and things. And so Mary, just in a beautiful way, the Magnificat, when she finds out um, uh, or, or when she uh, is ruminating on the incarnation, the birth of Christ uh, that has been been prophesied to her by Gabriel. She says this, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Well, that's really kind of a tough verse for a trichotomist. You know, you're looking at that and saying, Okay, part of you... Uh, the soul does the magnifying of the Lord and the spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Well, I don't find a lot of difference between magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God my Savior. Do you, Eric? I mean, do you see any difference between those two? And so I, I, they're just really the same thing said twice. Yeah, go ahead. Are there just two Greek words that are used for these two English words? Yeah, I mean, soul is psuchos and spirit is pneuma. And these are the words we're following. We're tracing out and seeing how they're used. Uh, uh, each in each case, and we just find them just being used for the same thing. So, yeah, go ahead. Is
0: there any biblical uh, authority for the, the warm fuzzy terminology, heart of hearts? The heart.
1: The heart of hearts.
0: Heart of hearts.
1: Uh, uh, the heart of hearts? Yeah, the word heart is very important, um, you know, uh, in the in the Bible. But I haven't found heart of hearts. I'll have to look that one up. I don't think it's in there. But anyway, yes.
0: Hebrew, Hebrew poetry also uses progression in. Uh, near parallel Mm -hmm. so to mention soul in one line and then spirit in the next line could mean a progression and that more than one part of her is praising God
1: yeah it could it could Um, although I I see I see here in the phrase magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God my Savior uh, a lot of parallelism there um, but I, I accept definitely what you say, and that's a, that's a beautiful observation of the way that Hebrew writes poetry. Uh, dead people are referred to both ways. For example, um, he, in Hebrews twelve twenty three, uh, there it says that we have come to Mount Zion, you know, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the Judge of all, and it says to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So there they are. They're disembodied spirits, I don't know what else to say. I've said that before, people are just jarred by it like we're telling like Halloween stories. But but that's what they are, they're disembodied, they're dead, and they are spirits, that's what the verse says, right? So we have come to spirits of the righteous made perfect. And that is such a technical term there. Their spirits are made perfect, but their bodies are moldering in the grave. So they are not fully saved yet, they're not fully glorified yet, they won't be until they have bodies as glorious as Jesus. And they'll get that at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the age, resurrection bodies. But their spirits are perfect. That means they think and feel and love and delight in all the same things God does. Isn't that wonderful? So that's, that's magnificent. Nothing lacking there at all. But it uses this word spirits. And then in Revelation 6, 9, it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So now you've got dead people and they're referred to as souls. Okay, interchangeable. Um, At death, uh, scripture says either that the soul departs or that the spirit departs. Uh, For example, soul, uh, speaking of Rachel's death, in the Old Testament, the word for soul is nefesh. And for spirit, it's ruach. And so those are, again, those are pretty clear words that are used there, nefesh. Uh, And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So she's dying in childbirth, Rachel, and it says her soul was departing. Departing from what? Well, from her body. Her soul, her nefesh, is going to be separated from her body. Elijah, in healing the dead child, 1 Kings 17:21. I went in the KJV this time, it says, and he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. So now it's the soul that has departed and he's praying that the soul would enter uh, into the child. Okay. So the soul departs. Uh, the suffering servant of Isaiah. Uh, again, this is speaking of Christ's death. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Uh, transgressors. So Jesus poured out his soul to death. And again, finally, the rich fool of Jesus' uh, Christ parable, uh, Luke 12, 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So this soul this night your soul is required of you means you're going to die. And God is going to uh demand the soul back. All right. That's all soul, all right? But then you get spirit on other in other places. For example, Jesus on the cross, it says, Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now you know that Jesus is also quoting a psalm there, so it's the same thing in the Old Testament. This is not a testamental issue in Old Testament, New Testament. We find this interchangeability in both, uh, both languages, both the Hebrew and the Greek. So Jesus there says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. All right. And having said this, he breathed his last. And then in John 19:30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So is it the soul that leaves the body or is it the spirit that leaves the body at death? Well, I just think that they're interchangeable, these words. Ecclesiastes 12.7, it says, the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. That's called death. Stephen's martyrdom, Stephen similar to Christ, uh, Acts 7.59, it says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So we have all of these um, you know, terms. You've got soul in on the one hand, spirit in the other.
0: Yes, go ahead. What's the
1: Hebrew in that Ecclesiastes? I didn't look it up. I didn't look it up. My guess is that the translators, the, the translations that I've chosen use, they're very careful. Nefesh is going to be soul and uh, uh, Ruach is going to be spirit. Yeah. So we'll have to look it up. All right. A third category is uh, that man is said to either be body and soul or body and spirit. All right. Uh, for example, man as body and soul, Jesus speaking here in Matthew 10:28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So there, kind of soul and body uh, makes up the sum total of what we are. Uh, Jesus speaking there as soul and body. Uh, by the way, that's an interesting uh, verse there for the idea of the resurrection of the wicked, which is taught in John chapter 5 as well. It's not just the righteous that are going to be raised physically, but also the unrighteous. And they will suffer with the uh, physical bodies in some way where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. It's in Mark chapter 8. Um, also, man as flesh or body and spirit, also in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. It says in that discipline, church discipline passage, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So then you have the idea of uh, body and spirit. Or again, James 2.26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Okay, The body without the spirit. So we are body and spirit. Or again, 1 Corinthians 7.34, it's talking about the advantages of singleness. You've read that passage before, I know. uh, 1 Corinthians 7 just talks about why it's just, in some cases, if God gives you the gift, it's better to be single. Uh, And he says his interests are divided. Speaking of the married man, an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Uh, Her... Uh, aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. So that's a phrase. Basically, she's giving the Lord everything she can. That's what Paul, you, you sense that that's what he's saying there. And she just wants to be fully devoted to the Lord, both in body and spirit. So again, the terminology there that I think Paul would be saying that's everything she is. She wants to give it to the Lord. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And again, this verse in Second Corinthians seven one, since we have these promises, uh, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. That again seems to be a terminology for every part of us, perfecting holiness out of reverence for, the, for God. So this category of verses, uh, shows that these phrases, body and soul or body and spirit, are kind of interchangeably used to talk about all that we are. Now let's talk about this issue here. Uh, The soul can sin, uh, but also the spirit, it says, can sin. Those who hold to trichotomy are usually going to say that the soul does all the sinning and the spirit does all the relating to God because that spirit is that new part of you that was created the moment you were born again. That's what the Holy Spirit breathed life into. That's what he made come alive inside you. That's that part of you that relates to God, right? The soul is that internal part of you that can be corrupted. It's it's your will and your emotions and your thoughts and all that. So they're going to put the kind of internal sin, uh, the, the sin of the heart on the soul. The soul is going to bear that because everybody's got a soul, all right? But the regenerate people have a spirit and they're going to kind of keep that pure from sin. Well, the Bible just doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't make that distinction at all. Uh, For example, uh, in 1 Peter 1.22, it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So there the soul needs to be purified. Well, the trichotomists would say, see, exactly. That's what the soul needs. It needs to be purified. All right, so the soul is a seat of sin. Also, 1 Peter 2.11, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war or wage war against your soul. So your soul is is uh, the target. Uh, the devil is coming after your soul. He wants to pollute your soul and attack it. Okay, everybody agrees with uh, that. Also Revelation 18:14, 14. Uh, the fruit for which you longed, literally lusted is the word there, has gone out from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, uh, never uh, to be found again. So the soul there is lusting after evil things. All right, it's a seat...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we're getting there in a second. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's great. Uh, that is on the very next page. So, good, good. Hang in there. Just, just one second. <coughs> we'll, we'll get there. But uh, I, you know, you're, you're tracking with me, and I'm excited about that. I mean, that means you're, you're following. Yes, the spirit actually can sin. Right, it needs to be purified anyway. Uh, Psalm 32, 2, It says, "Blessed is the man." Uh, against whom uh, the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, uh, there it says that the spirit might have deceit. Now, you you would say, well, but it says in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, but at least it seems to imply that the spirit could have deceit. And so blessed is the man who doesn't have any deceit in his spirit. Oh, wait a minute then. That means the spirit can be polluted too. Well, yes, I think it can. Uh, Psalm 78.8 says it more directly. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to, the lo- to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. By the way, that's a good, another good example of that Hebrew redundancy. I mean, look at those last two phrases. They're just identical, really. Whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. It's just the same thing twice. But basically there, their spirits are not faithful to God. That's sin in the spirit, right? Right. Or, as our brother just pointed out beautifully, 2 Corinthians 7, one, it says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. So apparently the spirit can be contaminated, not just the soul. The spirit can be contaminated. And so we should perfect holiness out of reverence for God. And then again, um, her aim is to be devoted in both body and spirit. It implies that she might not be devoted in spirit. There could be sin in her spirit. At any rate, you can see the interchangeability, your soul sins and your spirit sins, both of those things are possible. Now here is the key, one of the key issues and the key distinctions here. If you're a trichotomist, you basically have to, kind of the burden's on you to tell us what the soul does and the spirit doesn't, or what the spirit does and the soul doesn't. Please tell us biblically what what is the difference tell me what the soul does that the spirit doesn't or what the spirit does that definitely the soul doesn't and i just don't think you can do it you know whatever whenever you're going through the bible and you're learning you're going through various verses of the bible and find out everything the soul does i i can just about guarantee you can find the spirit doing the same thing in some other place and vice versa they're just interchangeable You get it? They're interchangeable. Yes, that's why we're dichotomous. They're interchangeable because you have to somehow find a way of saying what does the one do that the other doesn't do? okay now uh scripture uh, grudem puts it this way if scripture gave clear support to the idea that our spirit is that part of us that directly relates to god in worship and prayer or our soul uh includes our intellect thinking our emotions feeling and our will deciding then the trichotomist would have a strong case however scripture appears not to allow such a distinction to be made you're not going to find that anywhere it's just their idea and they know that they need an idea like this because they need to tell us what the difference is between the soul and the spirit. So they're going to say, well, the spirit handles the spiritual side and the soul handles all the other stuff that we all do internally. Okay? Now, uh, activities of thinking, and feeling and deciding are not said to be done by our souls only, uh, but also by our spirits. Acts 17, 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that, his, that the city was full of idols. How would you rephrase that? His spirit was provoked within him. What would you call that? He got upset. Yeah, he was ticked off in a spiritual way. You know, I mean, he was just, you know, yeah, he was very, very displeased to see this. You know, it's similar to the time earlier when uh, he and Barnabas were about to be worshipped in Acts 14 when they thought that, that Zeus and Hermes had come down in human form. And they got very upset about that and tore their robes. They didn't bask in it for any length of time. They weren't like, "Oh, I'll take the worship for a while and then correct them." No, they were extremely upset. There was a passionate response. Paul, you see the same thing here in in uh, Acts 17, and it's it's ascribed to his spirit. His spirit is provoked within him. Uh, or again, in in Proverbs 27:22, uh, it says, "A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones." So your spirit can be crushed. You know, and, and again, if you're going to be a trichotomist, you're saying that is the thing that was newly created by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what was that was what was created when you're dead in your transgressions and sins. But your spirit is crushed. No, it's just that internal part of you. You're depressed. You're down. You feel discouraged. It's an emotion. Yeah, Peter. Right. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, you know, definitely that's, I mean, Jesus, yeah, we'll get there, but that, that's, that's a great verse. Because frankly, you're going to end up with more than just three parts. If you're going to make strong distinctions there, you know, you're going to end up with, you know, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, you know, strength. You're going to say, well, how many parts of us are there, really? I think it's best to just keep it this simple. Material and immaterial. Those things that are made up of atoms and those things that are not. And I think if you do that, you're you're going to be safe. And then within that, you're going to have these words, soul, spirit, heart, mind, emotions, all that stuff's immaterial. Uh, And then you've got the body side. Yes, Sean.
0: It seems that uh, the spirit must have some sort of emotions because the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, definitely. God is a passionate being. Absolutely so. I agree with you. I agree with you. So Mark uh, 2.8, immediately Jesus, it says, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? So Jesus perceives, his spirit perceives. Or again, Romans 8.16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And 1 Corinthians 2.11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now again, Grudem wants to take a moment here and tell us we are integrated, so no one part of us thinks, feels, and decides without the other parts being involved in some way. I mean, when you really have an important decision to make, you really don't you feel it? I mean, even physically, your your body's involved. You know, the uh, Hebrew word for compassion or the organ of compassion were, were bowels. You know, your your, your your guts. I guess you're just feeling it at the gut level. I guess is the way we would talk about it. Yeah, we were, we're fearfully and wonderfully made and beautifully integrated is what I'm getting at. Uh, this is one of the dangers of systematic theology, is you take those things that are together and cut them apart for study. One of the best examples of this is the doctrine of God, where you're taking each attribute of God and studying it by itself. And, and that is, it's, it's really kind of dangerous because then you can forget how incredibly integrated God is. And you even can make some grammatical errors. For example, God is loving but he's holy. That bothers me. Don't ever do that. Why, Why would you not ever want to say, God is loving, but he's holy? Why would you not do that? Somebody tell me why. They're not contradictory. God is loving and God is holy. Because frankly, holiness is just another version of love. Isn't it? He loves righteousness. He loves his people and therefore hates evil and what it does to his people. It's not different. But we talk like that. I found myself doing that. I have to train myself not to put the word but in at wrong places. Because we're not going to say that. You know, and you even do that in your gospel presentation. You know, we have a loving and a compassionate God, but He is just. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. They're not contradictory. It's not like God, God had to kind of figure out how to not be schizophrenic, you know. Uh, It's not that way. He's a very integrated, He's a perfectly integrated being. All right? Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is what? He is one. There's no, you know, but systematic theologians, they kind of have to break apart what is beautifully integrated to study it. Uh, All I'm saying is let's never forget how one God is and that we also are ultimately perfectly, in the end, we're going to be integrated just like God, that they may be one as we are one. Isn't that beautiful? So each one of us will be perfectly integrated ourselves and we'll be integrated with the other believers. That's That's a beautiful promise. So we're integrated. All right. Now, on the other hand, activities of uh, uh, relating to God spiritually are not done only by our spirits. Remember, that's what the Trichotomists are telling us, that that the spirit is that part of you that relates to God. That's the part of you that prays. That's the part of you that worships. That's the part of you that relates to God. Well, how about this? Deuteronomy six, five, love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your what your soul. Ooh, how did that slip through? Um, Well, the soul loves God. Your soul loves God and with all your strength. Or this one, Psalm 25, 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Or again, Psalm 62, 1. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. First uh, Samuel 1:15, as Hannah's trying to um, deal with uh, Eli's question about whether she'd been drinking as she was pouring out her heart in prayer to God. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. So again, uh, enough verses to prove that it, our souls also relate to God. Frankly, the body's in there too. Uh, Psalm 84:2 it says, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Uh, Psalm 63:1, "O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then uh, same Psalm, verse 4, 63, 4, I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I'll lift up my hand. So there's a physical side to worship too. We're just integrated beings. That's what we are. In conclusion, Grudem says, Scripture does not seem to support any distinction between soul and spirit. There does not seem to be a satisfactory answer to the questions that we may address to a trichotomist. What can the spirit do that the soul cannot? What can the soul do that the spirit cannot? Now, what are their arguments? Well, uh, they have certain verses that seem to teach that there are three parts. The best is probably First Thessalonians 5:23, where it says, "May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." Now, that right there, folks, is a great example of the of the danger of proof texting. Right? If you were going to, if I had started with that, you'd say, "Well, there it is," right? Well, what else is there to say? You know, that's, that, doesn't that prove that we are made up of three parts, spirit, soul, and body? Well, does it? We'll get to analyze this in a minute. But I think once you run through and just look at soul and spirit biblically again and again and see that they do the exact same thing, then you say, okay, well, then what is this verse saying? That's a different question. But that's one of the verses they use. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 is another. Uh, it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So therefore, they're saying, you see, you can make a distinction. Now, it isn't easy to do to make a distinction between soul and spirit, but the word of God can do it. Well, I searched the word this afternoon and asked that it would make a distinction between soul and spirit. I couldn't find it doing so. Uh, But at any rate, this is one of the verses they bring forth. Uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. Another is uh, this idea of the natural person. And Nikki was asking about what words are used. Well, here the words are very interesting. There's a Greek word, psuchikos, which means soulish. And it really means the natural man, the soul man, so to speak. You know what I'm saying. I'm not getting into a music thing. We're not going to sing the Blues Brothers tonight. But it's a soulish man who's the natural man. And then there's the pneumaticos, the spiritual man and so doesn't that seem to imply that god created a spirit in regenerating somebody but the rest of the folks all they've got is the is the uh psuch, uh the soul uh, that's what it says so 1 corinthians 2:14 the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of god for they are folly to him he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. First uh, Corinthians 3.1 But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual, you know, pneumaticos, I couldn't do that. But as people of the flesh, there it's sarkikos, as infants of Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Even now you're not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, th- these verses here are the kind of key verses for Campus Crusade for Christ and other groups teaching the carnal Christian. Have you ever heard of that? The idea of the carnal Christian? The carnal Christian is the one who lives no differently whatsoever from the unregenerate man, but he did walk the aisle or pray the prayer or do something earlier, so therefore he can't ever lose his salvation. So he's a Christian. He's just a carnal Christian. That is such a dangerous doctrine. It's just very, very poorly done because it implies that all you need to do is pray the prayer and there doesn't need to be any fruit in your life whatsoever. These things are just not taught in the New Testament. That's why the faith and works teaching in James 2 is so vital. You know, faith apart from works is dead. It's demon faith. It's not real. Uh, And there's so many other verses that teach that there must be life uh, faith results in life and life results in fruit. And if you don't see the fruit, you're one of those dead branches. Jan, John 15 that's going to be collected and burned in the fire. So are not, there must be a, a principle of life in you. Well, I know that crusade is trying to encourage people to rely on the Holy spirit, the spirit filled life and all that. But I just don't think that the carnal Christian is a helpful distinction. All right. Rather, I think what we want to try to do is understand what Paul's getting at in these verses. What is going on in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 3, 4? One thing I get out of it simply is this. The Christian life is a supernatural life. Do you see that? When he says, are you not acting like just regular people? I mean, what is the what is the implication of that question? What's, what's behind that question? What is Paul assuming when he's talking to these Corinthian Christians?
0: They're, they're using whatever power any human being has to do what they're doing.
1: Right? Yeah, go ahead. They haven't been changed. They're the same. And the assumption is a Christian should be what? Changed. He should be living a supernatural life. This Isn't this what Jesus was getting at when he said, uh, if you love only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? And if you greet only those who greet you, I mean, everybody does that. What is there to that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's at the end of, of Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. What is Jesus assuming? If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you're going to be doing better than the pagans and the tax collectors. You're going to be living at a higher level. And Paul's saying, I want to see it. I don't want the factions anymore. I don't want the divisions. I don't want somebody saying, I follow Paul and somebody else saying, I follow Apollos. If you do that, you're no different than your pagan neighbors. And you really should be different. That's what he's getting at. He's not identifying a separate class of spiritual existence called the carnal Christian, who doesn't need to show any fruit in his life but who prayed the prayer and he's fine on judgment day. He is not doing that. Decidedly, he's not doing that here. Okay, so let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 14, 14 also seems to be a trichotomous verse because it says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So here's that kind of created thing that God made that's praying and relating like that homing beacon to God, right? That's the spirit and and the spirit's praying and doing what it needs to do, but the mind isn't getting it. The mind is unfruitful. uh, That whole thing. So... Uh, that's his approach. And then there's this one I mentioned earlier, the argument from personal experience. Many trichotomists say they have a spiritual perception, a spiritual awareness of God's presence, which affects them in a way uh, that they know how to be different from their or, that they know to be different. Sorry, from their ordinary perception, thinking, and emotion. They just feel like there's something else inside them now. They feel like there's a different thing. And you know something? I, I wouldn't dismiss it. I just would call it the Holy Spirit of God. I would say that the spirit is testifying to their spirit in a way he he didn't do before they were Christians. There's a different reality. Christ is dwelling in their hearts now by faith. So yes, they feel like there's a different entity inside them. Uh, It's the indwelling spirit. Uh, They also argue that it's our spirit that makes us different from animals. Hebrew sometimes gives the nefesh, the kind of living principle, to animals. So we both have that, but we as believers, we have also the spiritual side can relate to God. Well, that that may seem accurate, but you need some biblical support for that. Not just, I think that that's how we're different from animals. You'd need verses that would actually teach it, <laughs> and it doesn't. And then they say, Romans 8.10 teaches that our spirit is what comes alive at regeneration. Um, if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Um, these are the various uh, defenses that trichotomists give, uh response uh, that Grudem gives and some that I've mixed in here as well. 1 Thessalonians 5:23, when it says, "Your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless," I think Paul is just kind of, you know, kind of piling up terms here uh, that basically mean may, may every part of you uh, be kept blameless. Just like he does uh, in 2 Corinthians 7:1, may may all the parts of you be pure. May everything that you are be given over fully to the Lord. I think that's what he's doing. Uh, if you look, as was mentioned earlier, Mark 12:30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Isn't Jesus just piling up phrases there? Three of those things are immaterial. They're internal things, right? One of them is your strength, your body, right? Well, I, I don't think we're going to go for four parts, are we? You know, that, that we're now up to four, or if we can find another immaterial part, we're up to five. No, I just think it's, it, the, biblically, the safest ground is you've got your physical or material side, and then you've got your immaterial side. Uh, non-physical side all right he was 412 notice that when it says that the word of god is powerful living and active to the dividing of soul and spirit joints and marrow it doesn't say soul from spirit so actually it doesn't say that the soul and spirit can be divided Uh, rather it's just saying that the word of god is able to probe to the deepest part of you and hit every part of you powerfully and effectively i think that's what it's saying it's not enough to overturn the fact that these words are used interchangeably throughout the Bible. We already covered 1 Corinthians 2, and I, I said it. One thing is, one of their key arguments is that, uh, that uh, non-Christians uh, don't have a spirit. Well, that's not biblically accurate. Uh, Non-Christians do have a spirit. In many, many cases, there are verses that talk about the spirit of, a, of an unregenerate person. 1 Corinthians 2.11, it says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? This is speaking generally. So basically, generally, in in the case, the only person that knows their own thoughts is their own spirit. Also, if you look at, um, yeah, down on the bottom of the next page, um, Deuteronomy 2.30, it says, but Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by, uh, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. So there's Sihon. He's the very picture of an unregenerate man, right? He won't let the people of God pass through, and God hardened his spirit, right? So he's got one, (laughs) It's just not going well for him. It's a polluted spirit, but it's you know, he's got one. Yes, go ahead. And
0: In Ephesians 2, you know, people are
1: on physically dead, they're spiritually dead.
0: Mm-hmm. That's they're talking about
1: dead. Yeah. That's that would be I think attending toward a trichotomous verse and they would say that that's what that's what was happening to you before you were a Christian and then you were brought to life uh, through the gospel. All right? All right, the Bible does speak of an immaterial part of us that God created and will be there on Judgment Day as we said at the beginning. Now, one final question uh, before our time is done is where do our souls come from? The, uh, traditionally, theologians have given three uh, different answers. The first is creationism, namely that God creates a new soul for each person and sends it to that person. This is Grudem's quote, uh, sometime between conception and birth. Now, here you get into the whole pro-life thing and my feeling is you know, what makes someone a human So you really would have to think that the soul would be there right at the start, and that's where I would be. Uh, But at any rate, creationism teaches each soul is a special creation of God each time the baby is made. And, you know, if that's true, what a remarkable thing that is when you think about it. You know, a husband and wife come together in marital relations, a baby is conceived, but God makes within that child an eternal spirit. Isn't that remarkable? It will spend eternity in heaven or hell, and only God can do that. It's a remarkable thing. It's really a source of awe and wonder. It should be. Really an incredible thing. Zechariah 12.1 says, The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth, and, listen, formed the spirit of man within him. So I think that God does that. This is my view, that God creates a soul each time. Traducianism, which uh, really lines up very well with uh, certain views concerning original sin, the Roman Catholic view tended... In this direction, the soul as well as the body of the child is inherited from the parents at the time of conception. So, kind of sin is passed on almost physically from father to son, etc., through the line Adam, our first father, and it's almost like a physical virus or pollution that goes on, and that's how original sin works. Traducianism—they uh, would point to Hebrews 7, 9, and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who pay, or receives the ties paid the tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Very interesting verse. So that's the verse that they would use to support that. And the third one is pre existentialism I had to work on that. I stumbled all over it. pre existentialism And the idea here is that the souls of people exist in heaven long before their bodies are conceived in their mothers. And that God brings the soul to earth to be joined with the baby's body as he or she grows in the womb. Anyway, this view is not biblical and comes dangerously close to Eastern ideas of reincarnation. It does, however, give a cute explanation for the depression over the upper lip of each human being. So if you turn the page, I found a cute little poem here and we'll close with it. It's called, okay? An angel descends from heaven moments before each birth To usher in the newest soul, God shares with us on earth. Together but a twinkling, they share a brief repose while pressing a celestial finger beneath the baby's nose. He whispers to the infant, Shh, don't tell them what you know. For those who are much older have already been told, but they chose not to remember. So let's not give them a hint that the cleft upon their upper lip is an angel's fingerprint. Aren't those pictures cute? Isn't that sweet? And aren't you blessed if you have one of the baby blue sheets and didn't have to settle for one of the boring white ones here? All right, I, I was going to do blue and pink, but I couldn't get the copier to do that, so there it is. On a very untheological note, uh, we'll end. Any questions on that? Yeah, go ahead, Darcy. Deny uh, trichotomy? Yes. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't deny it. I think it's it's within the pale of orthodox Christianity. Okay, That's so what I would say. You
0: can affirm that you can affirm dichotomy. You cannot affirm trichotomy, but you also cannot deny trichotomy explicitly yeah.
1: in nice Yeah. Yeah. What I would do is I would say the burden is on the trichotomist to tell us the difference between them, and then after a while you're going to start to say, how does this help us in our Christian lives? You know, I mean, how how is it helpful to us to know that there? Because you can't show biblically at all any distinction between the soul and spirit. So after a while, it just becomes a piece of arcane theological reasoning that doesn't help anybody. So yes.
0: This is a wonderful way to end the class because then I won't be embarrassed to ask, ask any question because you ended it like this. But there you go. Yeah. Anyway, see,
1: so I bet you wondered where that little thing came from, didn't you? Yeah, so right. now you know. So okay. I didn't just ask anything and it will be considered stupid. Uh, well, within reason. So go <laughs> ahead. You know.
0: is that it would seem that he or she could then argue that we would retain our full identity or our full consciousness and awareness after death. And it's interesting in Philippians where Paul, in 1, 23 and 24, he actually says, seems like the I, he identifies I, will be with Christ. Mm -hmm. He himself uh, lodges his identity Mm -hmm. in whatever it is that's going to go be with Christ away from the body. Mm -hmm. And then I guess I'm interested in... um, the concept of being in the spirit, mm-hmm. um, like John speaks of in the book of Revelation, or well, that, being yeah. full of the Spirit, and how that—that's
1: a different thing. I think what's going on there is that the Holy Spirit so totally takes over and controls you that all your thoughts and emotions and and your words and all that are just so filled with spiritual truth at that moment you in know, the Spirit. Yeah, in the Word or, or just that the Spirit there in the book of Revelation, the Spirit just t- takes John over and brings him in amazing ways through some spiritual truths. If you have any other questions, I'll stand here for a few minutes afterwards and uh, we can talk. You know, I think the Bible's an amazing book, isn't it? And uh, it's remarkable the kinds of doctrines that flow from it. This was not a shining moment in systematic theology here tonight. Okay, there are some that are more important than others. But know this, all of the things that we're studying here from the Scriptures, they're remarkably deep. Uh, I don't fully understand who I am. When I look at Romans 7 and it says the very things I hate I do and I the things I don't you know I don't do and etc there's a complexity even now to what we are that we will not fully understand in this world and it's well worth it to us to try to understand and to study it. Amen. Amen. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for each of my brothers and sisters tonight for our our uh, joy in having this book, the Bible, and all that it teaches us, and the sense that of awe and wonder and grandeur as we look at some of these verses and realize that even a simple, uh, kind of by the way topic like this one still is too hard for us finally in the end to resolve and understand. But Lord, yet that's, that incredible system, or really city of truth, is being erected in our minds, in our hearts. Just stone by stone, brick by brick. And we just give you thanks for that, Lord. Lord, shape and form our worldview. Help us to think like you think so that we can live like you lived, Lord Jesus, so we can be holy and pure. We can love what you love. Father, I pray that we would not des- despise a single jot or tittle of your word and that we would embrace it and learn from it. Father, help us to walk with you, to be faithful in evangelism and prayer, faithful as parents of our children, faithful as spouses. Lord, help us, each one of us, to do all those good works you've ordained, that we should walk in them. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification,